Okay, this is the podcast for week 11. Um, and this is also completes the second unit of our class um, looking at uh, the modern public sphere. Um, and in this second unit, we've kind of done two things. Um, we've been reading The Misinformation Age by Kaylin O'Connor and James Owen Weatherall um, and supplementing it with multiple um, articles and essays. Um, and the reason we did that is because uh, I think this comes clear in in the final chapter of the misinformation age. Any attempt to sort of try to deal with this problem of misinformation and so on is going to come from a particular direction maybe a particular discipline, looking at economic aspects, political aspects, sociological or psychological, and all those ways of inquiry, which are all sort of valid in some sense necessary, all have their limitations. And I think in the, in the last chapter of this information age, we do get a sense of some of their limitations. Um, as, they, as they say in page 150, our focus in the previous three chapters has been on science. As we explained in the introduction, the reason for this is that it's relatively clear that in scientific communities, some or all the actors involved are trying to learn about the world and what they take to be the most reliable and effective way possible. They want to discover the truth. Um, and they go on to say that to some extent, there is an analogy between science and uh, what we're all trying to do in our daily lives. Um, we are all trying to figure out stuff about the world, and we do the same basic reasoning that science uh, scientists do. Right? We we take evidence, we weigh the the probability of that evidence, or weigh that evidence in terms of probability, its, its ability to predict future future situations. And in that sense, we all do a tiny bit of science. Um, one of the other uh, real limitations of their book is, as they say on page 152, um, emotion plays no role in our models. Neither does intelligence nor political ideology. We only have very simple, highly idealized agents trying to learn about their world using mostly rational methods, and they often fail. So there's a limitation here in the sense that, and this is why we've used other articles like today's uh, selections from The Passion for Ignorance, as well as the pieces from Richard Seymour, and others that have focused maybe more on political ideology or emotion. Um, that seems to be a, a huge limitation. But even with that limitation, they come to some, some rather uh, dire consequences. So I want to talk about that. But first talk about a couple of other things they say in making this point. Um, uh, the first is... As they point out in page in page uh, one fifty two, that um, that fake news, as it's called, is nothing new. Right? I mean, their their first their first example goes back to the Middle Ages, but even fake news in politics is nothing new. But what perhaps has changed is the ability of people to be able to spread such news. Uh, and to be exposed to it, right? Um, I mean, they, they mentioned that even one of their biggest examples when um, uh, the New York Journal um, uh, uh, published 
obviously fake uh, stories or, or demonstrably fake stories that only had the uh, impact of a portion because there are multiple New York City newspapers at the time a portion of the reading public in New York City because of the the, the access to print and the speed and ability to disseminate print was rather limited. Now, um, anyone with a, a smartphone can uh, create something that could be seen by, by millions upon millions, multiple times that. Um, so our ability to spread fake news has increased. Um, and so, uh, as they say on page 179, the one thing we cannot count on is the idea that uh, there would be any kind of marketplace of ideas that would um, sort out the fake from the true. They say, um, one general takeaway from this book that we should stop thinking that the marketplace of ideas can effectively sort fact from fiction. In 1919, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes dissented from the Supreme Court's decision in Abrams versus United States to uphold the Sedition Act of 1918. The defendants had distributed leaflets announcing U.S. attempts to fear in the Russian Revolution. While the court upheld their sentences, Holmes responded that the ultimate good desired is better reached by free trade and ideas. The best test of truth is a power of thought to get itself accepted in the competition of the market. Um, as they go on to say, Holmes' admirable goal was to protect free speech, but the metaphor of the marketplace of ideas as an analog to the free market and economics has been widely adopted. Through discussion, one imagines that wheat will be separated from the chaff and the public will eventually adopt the best ideas and beliefs and discard the rest. Ultimately, this marketplace is a fiction and a dangerous one. Um, and as they, in some sense, show what the marketplace of ideas doesn't get us, it does not get us um, uh, true ideas prevailing over false ideas. It gets us Pizzagate, I mean, quite literally, in the sense that that um, adopting a sort of free market idea about uh, the nature of truth and letting different versions of things compete um, leads to not the truest ideas winning over, but often the ones that are most capable of eliciting uh, uh, people's anxieties, fears, and fantasies about the nature of reality and their place within it, as we talked about last week. Um, so what, what is to be done? Now, um, since, since, O'Connor and Weatherall are primarily concerned with philosophers um, uh, of science and scientists. They have some things to say to scientists. Scientists should be aware of the political and nature of the world they inhabit. Um, and in, in doing so, be careful to um, publish things that could uh, be utilized in such a way and then also be wary of as they point out that maybe it's time um, to figure out something to do with outliers in terms of the people who still think there's no connection between cigarette smoke and cancer or the people who think there's no 
connection between the burning of fossil fuels and global warming, people who are by most uh, definitions outliers to an overall consensus, that something needs to be done in terms of how these views are disseminated. Um, uh, and uh, and how they're distributed in society. And also, um, uh, as they say um, on page 183, that there should be some way to deal with um, uh, labeling or identifying uh, fake news, fake information. Um, they say, on page 183, some readers may consider this a form of censorship and counter the spirit of free speech, but the goal here is not to limit speech, it is to prevent speech from illegitimately posing as something it is not, and to prevent damaging propaganda from getting amplified on social media sites. If principles of free speech are compatible with laws against defamatory lies against individuals, surely they are also compatible with regulating damaging lies dressed up as reported fact on matters of public consequence. Lying media should be clearly labeled as such for the same reason that we provide the number of calories on a package of Doritos or point out the health effects on a cigarette box. And social media sites should remain vigilant about stopping the spread of fake news on their platforms, or at the very least, try to ensure that this news is clearly labeled as such. And of course, there have been attempts made in this direction um, uh, by social media sites and so on, although it's usually very incomplete. Um, and part of it is because, um, as they point out, it's cheaper to do this with algorithms, but algorithms are not very good at doing this. Um, uh, and hiring actual people and plus as many people have pointed out um it's one thing to say that uh, uh, intentionally false things should be labeled as such it's an entirely other thing to figure out who should be responsible for that but then that brings us to the other concluding point from their book and that is that maybe we're reaching a point in which democracy as such needs to be re-examined and I think here we can just sort of look back upon some of the reading and discussion we've had over the past couple of months and point out that, you know, if we take seriously the idea expressed by people like Kant and Mill and, and, and articulated by, by Habermas, that democracy as we know it depended upon a particular way of producing and disseminating knowledge, right? that a well-informed populace is foundational and that democracy took a, it required a kind of public sphere of well-informed uh, and well-read and literate, I'd say literate people who could uh, read about the matters affecting them and affecting society and make judgments. Right? And of course, I mean, even Habermas pointed out that this was always from the get-go flawed because a lot of that information was dependent upon commercial interests and commercial interests are interested in doing something other than informing the population. They're interested in selling products and, and so on. Um, but at the very least, we could say that the, the fundamental relationship between literacy, print media, and democracy has fundamentally changed in the sense that, just as we were mentioning, fake news is not new, um, uh, but there was at least 
there were, there were at least real limitations on who could spread fake news and how far it could spread. So as long as we are dependent upon the printing press and print-based technology, now uh, it is even more possible for such news to um, to spread. So the first question then um, uh, would be just, and this is just open for speculation, two points. Uh, how has the digital public sphere changed democracy and how is it possible to perhaps change the digital public sphere to protect democracy? Or if you don't think that's possible, how is it possible to redefine democracy so it's compatible with the digital public sphere? So those are the, that's question one. Um, and I'm going to pause for a second and come back to second reading. Okay, so part two for this week is uh, the introduction in chapter one of A Passion for Ignorance, What We Choose Not to Know and Why by Renetta Selechel. Um, and I think the first thing to say about her book, um, and she's coming at this from the perspective of philosophy and psychoanalysis, is that as she points out, um, uh, there are lots of good reasons for ignorance, or lots of ways in which ignorance serves us. And I think that goes against sort of the way we think about ignorance as kind of necessarily being a fault or a default of some sort, and that we always want to know as much as possible. Um, uh, she points out in our personal lives, in our social lives, um, sometimes it is better to not know. Um, uh, I mean, this is, you know, she talks about this informed sort of relationship dynamics where sometimes it's better to not know or not focus on all the negative qualities that someone you might be in a relationship with instead of focus on the positive ones to, in some sense, ignore. And she often talks about the, the connection between ignoring and ignoring ignorance and there are other more pressing times as she gives the example of you know people who are facing a a uh, fatal disease uh, may want to not think about it and there are lots of reasons why we may in our day-to-day -day lives want to be ignorant about certain things so that's um true and i think one of the things that's interesting about her perspective is that um, one of the things she's trying to think about is the connection between the sort of day-to-day -day ignorance that we utilize in order to maintain our existence, the things we don't think about, ignore, or do not want to know anything about just so we can get through our lives, and the way in which those sort of things um, uh, uh, relate to social structures and institutions. Um, I, I know that, that personally in the past year or so um, during the pandemic, I've struggled a lot with my desire to both know stuff and my desire to, to, to know what's going on and, and so on, but also to, um, to keep sanity by being ignorant about certain things, not reading every article, 
that came across, especially as some speculated very dire situations with mutations and so on and so forth. Um, but I also recognize the way in which from the day one, I remember very early on before the shutdown, before things happened, when we were first hearing about Wuhan, China, um, and this new virus potentially, I was talking to a friend of mine, this friend used to live in, in Okinawa, Japan, and was familiar with China, had been there multiple times, and so on. And he pointed out, quite sensibly, that uh, China still has a high uh, rate of smokers, but there are more, you know, there are a higher rate of smokers in places like China than there are in the U.S., and it also has uh, uh, and it's massive, massive industrialization, huge issues with air pollution. And his point was that maybe, you know, maybe the virus was not that big of a deal. Maybe it's being blown out of proportion and people were having respiratory conditions because of smoking and air pollution. And I remember the moment when, this, when he said this, like, I very much wanted to believe this. It was way more reassuring than everything else I'd heard. Um, it seemed like he knew what he was talking about. He's been to China. I have not. Um and, uh, but I recognize now that that was one of many moments where I choose the version of things that most suited the way I wanted to live. Cause I didn't want we'd already, you know, we're beginning to talk about the idea at USM, it might not, uh, we might close the campus and so on. All these things sounded very difficult. And I very much wanted to believe that this thing would go away. Um, and I think I could tell an entire story, and I'm sure other people could, about other times I believed that it would go away, that uh, the summer would come and more sunlight would kill off and more people staying out of time. That at every step along the way, I believed that, um, that it would go away because that's what I wanted. Um, even when, and, and sometimes my beliefs were well-founded, right? The vaccines came out, they were very effective and so on. Um, I, like a lot of people, I underestimated how much there'd be re uh, resistance and hesitation to take vaccines. And I underestimated the extent of the, uh, the virus's ability to mutate and so on. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, there's definitely a way in which there, there's a strong connection between my desire and ignorance. And I think that often we only want to know as much as we can handle and we avoid knowing more than we can possibly handle. Um, uh, but one of the other things that, that Tlachel talks about is the, the economics of ignorance. Um, and one of the, I think, striking things that she mentions is that we often talk of ourselves as living in a knowledge-based society, and it is in some sense true that we have access to more knowledge than previous societies, uh, or individuals in previous societies would have, um, just at the touch of our fingertips, available on our phones and so on and so forth. Um, but I think one of the interesting things she, she points out about this on page 28 is the extent to which um, She says, um, 
page 27-28. One example is out of scientific journals, which are designed specifically to spread knowledge. While scientists eagerly engage in the task of writing articles for distinguished journals, and also do the unpaid work of peer-reviewing articles by others, access to materials once published can be difficult to secure and often prohibitively expensive. In recent decades, some scientific publishers have created an intricate business machine that demands institutions pay extremely high subscriptions for their publications. A paradox has thus emerged that research, which is often government-funded, is only available at high cost to libraries, which in turn to be subsidized by governments in order to be able to pay the subscriptions. For an individual unable to gain access to these libraries, vast amounts of new knowledge are off limits. Corporate realities are thus making ignorance part of scientific endeavors in a way different from the one fire of science identifies. Ignorance here is not linked to essential gaps in knowledge, but instead to structural economic mechanisms which limit access to knowledge in the interest of profit. Um, and I remember reading an article by Nathan Robinson on this point, where he mentioned that um, in terms of the economy of knowledge, that to some extent, you know, uh, not just scientific journals, but newspapers and other news sites that uh, do the work of fact-checking that send reporters out into the world and, and try to talk to everyone who's involved in a story, get all possible accounts and try to do what counts as good journalism, that often these uh, types of newspapers, their articles are behind paywalls because that kind of news is not cheap to produce. It costs money. The newspaper has to recoup their money somehow. And so they have you pay for a digital subscription. Uh, and, and Nathan Robinson's point in this article was that if you wanted to say, um, look up, say, the Sandy Hook massacre or the shooting at the elementary school, there would be tons of stories and videos detailing false flags, showing the crisis actors and stuff available for free on YouTube. But if you wanted to read the in-depth coverage by, say, the local Hartford paper, maybe the Hartford Current, or maybe even the New York Times was close enough by, um, uh, if you wanted to read that, you would have to pay. Right? So I think it goes back into something we've been talking about for a while. One of the interesting things to think about is that um, conspiracy theories are often free. And real accounts of things are often expensive. So if you take that often repeated phrase that people love to say, I do my own research. Well, the truth of the matter is, unless you are located at a university, as we are, and as we're pointing out here that USM does have subscriptions to quite a few scientific journals and periodicals, that if you will go onto the USM library database and type something in, um, uh, you will have access to information that your average person out in the world will not. Um, so doing your own research looks very different from where you're, where one person might be sitting. Um, and quite honestly, doing your own research 
um, if you do not have access to scientific journals or even newspapers or news sites that are doing uh, the best in terms of journalistic integrity, sending out reporters and so on and so forth. Um, if you do not have access to those things, your research is going to look very different. It's going to be dependent upon the stuff that is freely available. And there's a certain sense in which economically speaking, uh, conspiracy theories come cheaper than actual journalism. And the same thing is true of even the world of media journalism. I mean, one of the things that's, that's happened in the, the huge shift to uh, networks like Fox News and MSNBC is that it is a lot cheaper from a network's perspective to have some celebrity news person like, you know, a Tucker Carlson or, 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 or a uh, Rachel Maddow sit in front of a desk and spout out whatever it is that they are aggravated about or frustrated about this week. That comes cheap. It is a lot more expensive to hire reporters, cameramen or women, etc., and send them out into the world to get stories and to do that kind of reporting. This kind of thing that we have now, this sort of quasi-opinion reporting, is very cheap. It's just, In some sense, it's, it's pretty much analogous to the, the way in which our television is dominated by reality TV. Reality TV is cheaper than scripted television. And the same way opinions are cheaper than actual news. Um, so, um, so I guess the, the second question then is, if, you know, in the first reading for today, O'Connor and Weatherall pretty much made the point that fake news isn't new. What is new is its ability to spread. I would also argue, following uh, Salachil's point, that ignorance is not new and a kind of willing ignorance, not wanting to confront the facts of things, but what has um, become, what has changed is the ability of that ignorance to spread, right? So let's, let's say, for example, and I think there are really good reasons. I think it's important, often overlooked, like people who deny the existence of the COVID pandemic, a lot of good reasons why this is, it's, it's a horrible thing. And a lot of people wish it wasn't true. And if you start out from the perspective of wishing it's not true, and you go out into the world to find confirmation that it's not true, you go online, for example, you're going to find plenty of people who will tell you that it's not real. Um, and that stuff, because it's very cheap, I mean, I could do it, you could do it. I could sit in front of a camera and talk to YouTube and upload videos. Um, because that stuff is very cheap, um, there's an economics of ignorance. So I guess the question is, uh, just like with, with fake news, if fake news is not new, but what is new is its ability to spread, how has the economics of ignorance that is cheaper to put out pure speculation, pure opinion than it is actual scientific study or actual even journalistic uh, uh, investigations, how has the economics of, of ignorance furthered the spread of, of ignorance? So one last thing before I finish, um, you know, the second essay 
is much more flexible and open than the first. I gave you definite questions to respond to. In the second essay, some of those training wheels are kind of coming off. Um, and uh, all I'm asking you to do, and you can pick one or more of the readings we've covered, is to put together what to you is the most convincing account of the current state of the public sphere, or what we might call the digital public sphere, um, which theory or idea um, from all the various things or which combination of theories or ideas seem most convincing or compelling for explaining that. Okay, thank you.